sin in the, in the flesh by living sinlessly, then dying to pay the price for sin. And in so doing, he liberated us from condemnation so that we can now be free from the law of sin and death. And then last week, last week, Mingu led us in a study of uh, verses 5 through 11 of Romans chapter 8, where Paul emphasized the Spirit. And Paul's primary point in this section was that those who have been freed from the condemnation of sin have a choice. They can choose to live according to the flesh, or they can choose to live according to the Spirit. Only one of those options is pleasing to God, and as Mingu showed us, only one of those options produces the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul goes on to say that for those who allow Jesus' death to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law on their behalf, the Spirit will indwell them in order to give, them, give life to their mortal bodies. And now tonight we arrive at the next section of Romans chapter 8, and we'll be focusing on verses 12 through 17, where Paul is going to emphasize sonship. So let's begin this evening by reading this section together. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I believe verse 14 is the key verse to this section. Look, look at it with me again. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There are two key statements in this single verse that I want to emphasize tonight. The first is that phrase, led by the Spirit of God, and the second is that title, sons of God. Let's consider the implications of those two statements tonight. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? I think we in, uh, in the churches of Christ in particular are easily intimidated by this terminology. It's there in our Bibles. We can read it, we can see it, but we don't want to talk about it, we don't want to emphasize it, because we don't want to give the impression that we're leaning in the direction of charismatic ideals and beliefs. But avoiding a biblical concept for the sake of appearances is never an acceptable strategy for anyone who wants to be approved by God for rightly handling the truth, as 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 says. So, first thing we need to do as we look at this statement, as we consider what Romans chapter 8 and verse 14 in particular is saying, is we need to acknowledge that the Bible clearly teaches that the Spirit leads. Not only do we see that terminology in Romans chapter 8 and verse 14, but it appears in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 18 as well. Now, it's worth pointing out that Paul did not describe in detail how Christians are led by the Spirit in either one of these books. As Paul Pollard, a, a former professor of mine at Harding University, said in his commentary on Romans for Truth for Today, 
It may be that as we read the Bible, the Spirit leads us through the words to conform to the image of God's Son. And the Spirit may also lead us in a providential manner, such as Joseph experienced in his life in Genesis chapter 37 through 45. Or it may be a combination of the two. In other words, we don't have the specifics provided by Paul here as to exactly how the Spirit will always lead. We just know that he does lead. It's also worth pointing out that the leading of the Spirit was not Paul's emphasis here in Romans chapter 8. Paul was focused on the need for us to allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit. The focus was on us following more so than the Spirit leading. As David Roper points out in his commentary on Romans, he says that Romans chapter 8 and verse 14 is more about our fellowship than it is about the Spirit's leadership. In fact, one modern translation of the Bible highlights this distinction by quoting Romans chapter 8 verse 14 this way. The true children of God are those who let God's Spirit lead them. Those who let God's Spirit lead them. That's the emphasis. And I think that's important to note because when you go back to Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 4, you can read about Jesus' temptation. And in both accounts, we're told that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Spirit was leading him, but the, the emphasis, the key is that Jesus followed the direction of the Spirit. That Jesus went as he was told by the Spirit. Because the real emphasis isn't so much on what the Spirit does, but on how we respond. So when we consider what it means to be led by the Spirit, we need to understand that Paul is not referencing some mystical, unexplainable premonition we receive as some in contemporary religious circles claim when they say things like, I was led by the Spirit to do this or to do that. Instead, Paul is saying that being led by the Spirit means having the basic orientation of your life determined by the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit means that you are following in the direction the Spirit is leading by orienting your life around its will. This is supported by the fact that in this very same chapter, Paul had already talked about walking according to the Spirit, setting one's mind on the things of the Spirit, and putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And then in Galatians chapter 5, where we've already had that reference to being led by the Spirit in verse 18, you'll also see mention to uh, walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, and keeping in step with the Spirit. All of these statements are referencing the fact that the Spirit should be what your life is oriented around. Because when your life is oriented around the Spirit, you produce the fruits that come in conjunction with it. The ultimate point is that being led by the Spirit is not a premonition, but an orientation. It's a deliberate decision to live in a way that is in subjection to the call and influence of the Spirit. We don't need to be afraid of such terminology. We don't need to be afraid to talk about the indwelling of the Spirit. We don't need to be afraid to talk about being led by the Spirit. We don't need to be afraid to talk about walking in the Spirit. They're biblical concepts. They're biblical ideas. 
They're biblical truths. We just need to understand what they mean. And so the first thing we notice here as, as we make this transition from what, what uh, the verses 5 through 11 emphasized with the dwell, indwelling spirit to this, this section that's going to emphasize the benefits of that indwelling through sonship, what we need to realize is that the spirit is real and active and that our lives are intended to be oriented by him. And with that understanding of this first phrase, what it means to be led by the Spirit, let's talk about that title. That title, Sons of God, that appears in Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. Now what's so significant about that? I mean, isn't everyone a child of God to some degree? I mean, every human being is an offspring of God in the sense that they were made in His image, as Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 declares. But here's where the distinction comes in. When sin entered the world, it blew up God's family, as one preacher said. John pointed this out quite well in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10, when he said, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And for all intents and purposes, he says they are a child of the devil, if you look at the first half of that verse. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says, all are at one time or another children of the devil because they failed to practice righteousness. You see, what 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10 is telling us is that even though we were created to be a part of God's family, when we allowed sin into our lives, we left the family. But God was unwilling to let his family stay broken. So he sent his only son to go and rescue those who were supposed to be in his family, as one preacher said. And you can turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, and see this written out by Paul. Because Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And the means through which such adoption is possible is baptism. Because just a few verses earlier in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29, which I think I did not include, we're told that in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's how you get adopted. Through the waters of baptism, you can be added back into the family of God. And an adoption is such an important metaphor in Scripture. It may not get enough attention. But if you look at Romans chapter 8, that's the metaphor used to describe our relationship to the Father in verse 15. And as I've already shown, Galatians loves to play off of Romans or vice versa because Galatians chapter 4 and verse 5, which we read just a moment ago, refers to our relationship to the Father as an adoption as well. I want you to think about adoption. 
I know we have a great many families in this congregation who have been involved in adoption. I myself have a unique experience with adoption, not because I have adopted or because I was adopted, but I'm the lone biological child of my parents. They adopted my brother because they were told they couldn't have kids, and then bam, I showed up. So I have an adopted brother, and it's very obvious if you ever meet him, because he stands about six foot two, six foot three. It's very obvious that we are not related. But I grew up in a household where someone was adopted. I have never known life when my brother wasn't adopted. And you know what? In the eyes of my family, there is absolutely no difference between me and my brother. Other than I'm the better son, of course. But in the standing within our family, we are equals regardless of our biology. The only difference between us is that I came naturally. He was intentionally chosen. That's the one beautiful thing about adoption. Adoption communicates that family membership isn't natural. It's intentional. In the context of Scripture, when we have this metaphor of God as a father who adopts children, we have this depiction of a father intentionally choosing to love his child. Think about it. I've never heard of an accidental adoption. I've heard of accidental pregnancies. I've heard of families that have had a biological child when they weren't expecting to. But I haven't heard of someone who stumbled into an adoption on accident. Because adoption, from everything I've ever heard, from my own parents to those who I've befriended that have gone through the process, Adoption is a grueling, time-consuming, exhausting, and expensive endeavor that was chosen. And I think that is so powerful. Because generally speaking, love comes naturally, naturally when a child enters a family naturally. But love is chosen when a child enters a family through adoption. And that's how God chooses to see us. So think about these passages. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, Christians are referred to as God's chosen ones. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, References made to the church, that includes all the sons and daughters of God. References made to the church as a chosen race. The message from the Father throughout the New Testament is that as His children, we've been chosen by Him. And what that adoption motif does is it challenges us to look at our relationship with the Father and see that it's not performance-based. Sometimes we get into this mindset that if we just do enough or we be enough or we perform enough, then maybe we can get back into the family of God. But that's not how God set it up. 
God adopted us, and our admission into the family is not based on what we do, but on what he has done for us. And I think when you approach the parable of the prodigal son with that understanding, it gives a whole new dynamic to that parable. Now, all too often, I paraphrase the parable of the prodigal son, so I want to read it this evening, beginning in Luke chapter 15 and verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Think about this. That son took the inheritance and ran. He squandered what his father had given him and found himself destitute. His life reached such a low point that he decided he'd be better off living as a servant in his father's house than a son living in a pig pen. He had hired himself out to a stranger, and now he's going to hire himself out to his father. That has become the only solution he sees possible. To go back home, he's concluded that the only way he can be readmitted into the household is if he goes back as a servant. And when he returned home, he offered himself to his father as a hired laborer, saying, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But he grossly underestimated how much the father loved him. Because the father welcomed him with open arms through a big party. And all the father could say was, My son, not my servant, not my hired hand, not my employee, my son was dead and is alive again. Despite that son's mistakes, despite that son's sins, Despite that son's wrongs, the father was willing to welcome him home without diminishing his status as his son. And therein we can find something about our heavenly father. Because our father in heaven loves his children 
And that's why he's entitled us to an inheritance. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Not servants, not hired hands, not laborers. Children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs. You see, the indwelling spirit that we receive as a gift when we are baptized into Christ, according to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, is more than just a compass for today. He's a deposit for the future. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, Paul referred to the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Greek term translated guarantee or deposit or pledge, depending on which translation you're reading, it's a financial term that refers to the first installment or the down payment paid out as a pledge of faithfulness to a commitment. And we understand deposits and down payments. We make a deposit or a down payment or major purchases as a sign of good faith that will uphold our end of a financial agreement. God is essentially doing the same thing as one author summarized. The Spirit given as a pledge is God's guarantee to us that every promise He has made, He will fulfill. The ultimate promise being heaven. And this means, this means that the Holy Spirit, as our deposit or our guarantee or our pledge, whichever term you prefer, is intended to create confidence in our salvation. The Spirit that indwells us, the Spirit that was given to us as a gift when we exited the waters of baptism and our sins were forgiven, the Spirit that leads us is there to instill confidence in us that we are sons. That's what makes the Holy Spirit the ultimate gift. A gift befitting an heir. And so I want to take us back to the parable of the prodigal son, and I want to finish it. Because the beauty of this aspect of our sonship, the fact that we have an inheritance guaranteed by the Spirit's presence, applies to that other son. So read with me Luke 15, verse 25 through 32. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the, the older son, he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But his, he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he, the father, he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
that eldest son was angry because he thought that his brother's treatment was unfair, undeserved, unjust. In his mind, his brother didn't deserve a celebration. His brother didn't deserve to be welcomed back. His brother didn't even deserve to be identified as his brother. So when he talked to his father, he called him this son of yours. But the problem the eldest son had is that he had forgotten what it meant to be a son. Did you notice what he said to his father in verse 29 when his father came out to talk to him? He said, these many years I have served you. The youngest son came home expecting to become a servant. But the father said, no, you're a son. The eldest son stayed home and could only see himself as a servant. And I can only imagine... that that must have broken the heart of the father to have his son view their relationship merely as a master-servant dynamic rather than a father-son dynamic. And so that father, that father who when his youngest son came home wanting to be a servant said, this my son was dead but is alive again looked at the eldest son who said, I've served you all these years, and responded there in verse 31. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. The father's point was that the eldest son wasn't merely a servant. He was an heir. Because he was his son, and he didn't want him to forget that. Just as the father showed the younger son how much he loved him by welcoming him home to the same status he had when he left, he is now showing the eldest son how much he loves him by reminding him of his standing in the home as an heir. And when we look at Romans chapter 8, and we see this de declaration that all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. We're being reminded that we have a status as God's adopted children. And there is an inheritance waiting for us that that Spirit serves as the deposit of. And in preparing for this lesson, I came across a story about a 60-year-old man named Timothy Henry Gray, who on December 29, 2012, was found dead under a railway bridge in Evanston, Wyoming, due to hypothermia. Mr. Gray was choosing to live homeless due to some eccentric personality traits. But what makes his story so fascinating is that he was set to inherit a portion of nearly $35 million. You see, Timothy Gray was the great-grandson of U.S. Senator William Andrews Clark, who made a fortune on copper mining, construction, railroads, but is most famous for starting a little town in Nevada called Las Vegas. 
Senator Clark's estate was passed on to his daughter, whose name was Huguette Clark. She died in 2011, no children. And after a lengthy legal battle, the relatives of Huguette Clark secured a portion of her $300 million estate. And a public administrator represented Timothy Gray in that settlement, even though lawyers and private investigators could not locate him. He was living homeless in Wyoming while people were fighting for his inheritance. So two days after Christmas in 2012, Timothy Gray, a homeless cowboy, was found dead under a bridge, even though he was a millionaire in waiting. And he didn't know it. The moral of that story is to not miss out on your inheritance. Peter called our inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. And then he said it's being kept in heaven for you until Christ returns. But that inheritance is only available to those who are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. So tonight, if you need to be adopted into this family by being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, then we invite you to come. Or if you're already his child, but you've wandered away from home like the prodigal son and you need to return, we invite you to come. Or if you're not choosing to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit and it's compromising your inheritance, of which he is a guarantee, then we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.
Thank you, Kyle. If there are those of you who haven't had the opportunity to take part of the Lord's Supper, it's prepared. Uh, we're going to sing number 688, 688. While we sing that, if you'll make your way to the back, you'll be shown where you can take part. 688. <clears throat> Jesus visiting with us again we want to thank you for being here we appreciate you being here and ask that you come back anytime you have opportunity um, we'll have um, Bible class on Wednesday evening this week before we close in prayer we're seeing number 756 756 
Shall we pray? Our most holy and righteous Father in heaven, we praise you and honor you and thank you, Father, for your great goodness. All of the blessings that we've received, every good and perfect gift comes from you. And Father, we're aware of that. We're thankful for the times that we've had today to gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you. We pray that we come away from this service, the service of this morning and this one as well, with the realization that we're his children, your children, because of our obedience to the gospel, because of the Holy Spirit given to us, because of the great sacrifice of Jesus. Father, help us be aware of that and help us to know that and appreciate it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.